must admit I'm excited about this morning. I'm excited about this section as we continue this series in 1 Peter. So this morning what I want to do is look at what Christianity has to say about the critical relationship between truth and life, belief and behavior, ultimate reality and morality. Now this is so important for us today for a variety of different reasons, but one of them is to even think or talk like this is to sound exceedingly narrow and naive today. A judgmental and archaic, what are you, from the age of the dinosaurs? But I want to argue this morning, uh, that isn't the case. Uh, Take your cell phone. I mean, don't take it out, but as an example. We all love them. We, we can hardly imagine living without them. You know, where's my phone? Where's my phone? And, and we love them and we can't live without them because of the convenience, because of the information, uh, because of the entertainment, because of the connectivity. It's all beautiful. But what is a cell phone? A cell phone is a delightful mix of platform and usage. Complex operating systems on the one hand, and easy operation on the other. Another way to say it is, it's a delightful mix of cell phone truth and cell phone use or practice or life. Now the same is true with your computer, with your TV, with your car, with your job, and on and on. What these guiding principles, these systems are to a cell phone, Christianity says ultimate reality is to life. And I want to show you a great, great passage on this. So we come to 1 Peter chapter 4 this morning, verse 7. And what we have is an assertion of ultimate reality. Just one statement, an unusual statement. The end is near. That's an ultimate reality claim. And then it's followed by four ways that reality means we must live. As followers of Christ. So let's begin reading in verse 7. The end of all things is near. Therefore be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. Above all, love each other, not casually, but deeply. Because love covers a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. So I want to start with this claim of ultimate reality that we have here right at the beginning, right in verse 7. And I want you to know I'm going to spend a fair amount of time on this because this is such a cultural issue today. And it's so important for us uh, to understand this. And by the way, if you are here and you don't know Christ, man, I want you to hear what Christianity has to say about this. So I want you all to understand this connection between ultimate reality and life. 
And the connection is found in one word in verse 7. It's the word therefore. Every time the Bible tells us how to live, how to speak, how to act, what to do, it's usually someplace in the context preceded by the word therefore or since, as a result. So this statement, the end is near, is the ultimate reality. And what follows are four different ways that we flesh this out in our lives. It's the therefore in verse 7 that connects those two. You see, according to Christianity, and I don't have a lot of time to develop this aspect of it. I'm going to go on and develop a couple others. Uh, According to Christianity, practical living makes no sense apart from ultimate reality. Now, I'd love to explore this as it relates to us as Christians, but I want to speak more broadly because this is the opposite of where we are today in the West. Today, a modern man, a modern woman uh, thinks, uh, you know, we can't know whether or not God exists. We don't know, we can't know for certain, we don't know if there's life after death, if Jesus is going to come back. We just can't know the meaning to life, whether human nature is sinful. But racism is wrong. Violence is wrong. School shootings, all wrong. But it's okay to do whatever you want sexually. Do you hear that? That's because morality today has no therefore. No ultimate reality, so we pick and choose. And all modern, uh, all modern notions of morality are baseless, inconsistent. So racism is wrong, violence is wrong. But sex in whatever situation, no, that's not wrong. That's where we are in the West today. But hold on, wait a minute. If there is no ultimate reality, why can we follow our sexual instincts but not our aggressive ones? If there is no ultimate basis for morals, if God doesn't exist, then there is ultimately no basis for differentiating right and wrong. A dog from a human, a shooting from a kiss. Now, I do not in any way mean to be insensitive. But I want you to understand what's going on today behind the headlines. I want you to see the inconsistency of thought in our culture. I want you to understand this is where we are in our world. An author I I love, I beg, borrow, and steal from all all the time, illustrates this inconsistency in two different ways. First, with an old Woody Allen movie. At the end of the Woody Allen movie, Woody Allen's voice comes on, and he says, "We, we can't know the answers to the big questions in life. We just can't. But we can be good 
and love our families. Now, we hear people say that all the time. That's one of the guiding notions of life in the West. What are you about? I'm going to try to be good, and I'm going to try to love people around me. Uh, But think about this. If we don't have any answers to the big questions in life, why be good? Why love our families? Why Why not steal? Why not abuse? Why not cheat like Alan did? One is as logical as the other. Just as logical. The second illustration uh, comes from um, that theological, sophisticated television show, The Simpsons. And this one episode is ultimately very sophisticated. Because in this episode, a town, a town decides... Uh, that they want to adopt a new basis for running that town. And they decide the new basis will be do whatever you feel. And everyone in the town is really excited about that because the old basis began to wear out and the old basis was do what you should do. As a matter of fact, people in the town are so very excited that they have a do-whatever-you-feel festival to celebrate. But there's a problem. During that festival, a portion of the stands collapse and people are injured. So people go grab the guy who was responsible for putting up the stands and they say to him, why didn't you fasten the bolts? And he says, oh, that would have cost me a couple hours of work and I didn't feel like it. And then somebody pipes up, that's irresponsible. Then somebody responds to that and say, no, well, wait a minute. We can't throw standards at other people. We do what we feel. And I don't know exactly, a, a, a father of a six-year-old who was injured in the stands comes up and says, I feel like choking you to the guy. And it goes back and forth, and the town descends into chaos. A very astute writer realized that if there is no ultimate reality, cultural chaos ultimately ensues. No ultimate reality. As somebody else has said, there is a very thin membrane between decency and anarchy if there's no God. And so today, what do people, uh, what do writers, what do thinkers say? Well, one of the things they say that I think is very germane, especially for us here in the U.S., is that for the last hundred years or so, the United States has been living off the income of ultimate reality while we're increasingly eating away at the principle. And we're increasingly getting closer and closer. This membrane is thinning and thinning, I should say. Now, all I've done is talk about the connection. All I've done is talk about the single word, therefore. So what I want to do now is I want to go to the content 
the specific ultimate reality claim, and we have it here in verse 7 at the end, and the claim is that the end of all things is near. Now, what in the world does that mean? Well, this is like waiting for your wife. You know, you got some place you guys got to go together, and you don't like to be late, and um, so you're ready, and then your wife utters those delightful words, well, I'll be right there. I'll be right there. So, being the good guy that you are, what do you do? You go down and start the car, and a minute goes by, two minutes go by, five minutes go by. Ten minutes go by, and you're in danger of losing your salvation now. (laughs) At the 13-minute mark, and you're watching every second of this, your wife arrives. Now, let's just speak hypothetically for a moment. Let's go back to minute seven. Um, at minute seven, you're frustrated and you're, you're starting to sweat and your hands are, you know, uh, g- getting wet. And what if you decide or what, what if you are, are, are thinking at minute seven, not decide, but you're thinking at minute seven, you know, this is going to be forever. Uh, I, I'm just going to go to a movie. <laughs> now, would you do that? No. Because you know your wife will be right there. Peter saw the crucified Christ. He saw Christ crucified. He saw the resurrected Christ. He talked to him. He he, he spent time with Jesus in his resurrection body. Peter, this Peter, saw Jesus ascend to heaven. He heard the angel say, as he goes, he will come again. He will return. So when Peter says the end is near, he is not saying Jesus will come tomorrow. He's saying the slate is clear. Jesus has been crucified, raised, ascended, and he could come at any time. So you live that way. Live that way. The end of all things is near. But there's one more thing. This is not unique with me. Because there's a real irony, another way to say it's a real tension cultural clash going on here. Uh, Let me set it up this way. Who goes around today saying the end is near? Crazy people. We see it in the cartoons. I I don't think you could find a course at Harvard entitled The End is Near, The Second Coming of Jesus. Or any university for that matter. But this passage says that Jesus Christ could come at any moment. Therefore, be alert. Some other translations translate be alert, be self-controlled. The word behind those words is literally sane. Be sane. In in Mark chapter 5, Jesus heals a demon-possessed man. A a man who had been living among the tombs, a, a man who had been crying out day and night, a man who had been cutting himself with stones. And he's healed. Jesus heals him. And he gets dressed. 
and he's sitting down. And Mark tells us he's in his right mind. Literally, that's the word sane. It's the same word here in our passage in verse 7. Now, what is sanity? Sanity is living in touch with reality. Insanity is just the opposite. But here, Christianity and the world couldn't be further apart. Because the world says if you live as if the end is near, you're insane. You're crazy. What? And Peter is saying if you don't, you're insane. If you don't. And you have to choose. You will have to choose tomorrow. You will choose each and every day of your life which way you're going to live. And according to Christianity, only if you believe Jesus Christ could come at any time will you live a life of sanity. That's right here. It's verse 7. Another way to say what Peter is saying is that the auditor is going to return. And he will audit the books. The end of all things is near. Okay, that's the ultimate reality. That's this first statement in verse 7. Now let's go on and look at how we should live. And Peter's going to say four things here. And man, when you're in your groups or you're together as a, with friends or around the, the table as a family, I want to encourage you to talk about these because the very first thing, according to verse 7, that Peter says is be alert and sober-minded. Two words. In other words, what Peter is saying is live with integrity. And by integrity, I mean spiritual focus, a center. Why? Because you believe Jesus could come in the middle of your weekend. You believe Jesus could come in the middle of your life. And you long for that. You think, man, talk about cool. Now let's back up. Let's continue talking about integrity and focus. Back up to verse 3. Peter says, speaking to these readers, you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans chose to do living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idols, idolatry. They are surprised that you do not join them in their reckless, wild living, and they heap abuse on you. Integrity here, in these two verses, is saying no, to be spiritually focused. What does that mean? It means there's things you're saying no to. I won't sleep with my boyfriend. I'll have a glass of wine, I'll have a beer, but I'm not going to get drunk. Man, I'm going to give myself to my job. I'm going to work hard. I'm going to be one of the hardest workers in in the company. But I'm not going to turn my job into my God and make it an idol. But Peter is also saying integrity involves a yes. Not just a no, but a yes. It's you telling yourself repeatedly, 
man, I'm a new creature in Christ. Jesus is my king. I've been raised with Christ. And on and on and on. He's the lover of my soul. So as great as my life may be right now, or as bad as my life may be right now, I know that Jesus Christ is better than anyone or anything, and I'm content. And the Bible calls that faith. And I want you to see what it produces. Go back to chapter 1 and verse 8. Man, I want this verse for all of you guys. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. A joy. Peter says your life is tapped out with joy. Because you're living a life of faith. You love him. You believe in him. Now what I want you to notice in verse 8 is Peter is not saying this is the experience of the spiritual elite. Peter is saying this is normal Christian living. To have this joy, inexpressible and glorious, that's the overflow of our heart connection with Jesus, our confidence in Jesus. Man, Jesus has got my back. I'm forgiven. And so I wonder, is there such a spiritual alertness, a centeredness, a focus, an integrity to your life around Jesus that produces a inexpressible joy. And talk about that with others. Let's go on. Number two, the second thing we see here is because we believe the judge could return at any moment, we love others. This is verses 8 and 9. Peter says, Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Now, I'd love to just spend some time talking about what loving others looks like, but there's something going on in this context that I can't let us just pass by. And that is, uh, how does the knowledge of Judgment Day produce love in our lives rather than isolation and judgment? Do you see this connection here? And the answer is because to be a Christian means you believe that Jesus Christ is your Savior and Lord. You've trusted him. And the moment you trust him as your Savior and Lord, what does he do? He forgives you. He takes away your sin. He bore it for you. He accepts you. You are eternally secure. And so you understand it's not about, life isn't about what you must do, it's about what Jesus Christ did for you on the cross and in his resurrection. Which means as a Christian, you aren't afraid of judgment day because you know you will not be punished. It ain't going to happen. But instead, as Christians, we can wonder, we can be afraid now of someone saying to us, you knew I forgave you. 
I accepted you. I have made you eternally secure. Why didn't you live a grateful life? Why were you so stingy and not generous? Your, your words, your attitudes. You knew all that I did for you. Why did you live as if you weren't completely loved by me? Now we're getting it to what is underneath disobedience. Uh, we disobey God because we uh, believe the word of God is not good for me, that I care about myself, I love myself more than God cares about me. God loves me. In other words, disobedience is impugning the goodness of God. And the lie under all disobedience is if I obey God in this situation then I'm going to miss out. So we capitulate to temptation. But we're Christians. And so we live functionally, I mean day in and day out, hour in and hour out, as if we could face our lover at any moment. And when we live in light of that wonder, God's love, that Jesus is coming back, and he could come back at any time, Man, that melts our heart. I'm completely loved. And it frees us, and here's the point in the passage, it frees us to love. To be hospitable. To be other-centered. To watch our words. Where we go, what we do. Who is it that you need to love that you're not loving? Third, we pray. Now, this is the end of verse 7, so we've just been at 8 and 9, and I, I'm backing up. But the reason I'm backing up is because what is prayer? Prayer is a response to the love of God. I will pray when I know God loves me, God cares for me. And so this is at the end of verse 7 where Peter says, pray. Now, what is prayer? Prayer is to your relationship with God, what communication is in a marriage, what good, solid communication is among very good friends. It's a combination of listening and talking. Talking to one you love because you know you are loved. Uh, so prayer is both experience and battle. It's satisfaction and it's a struggle. Actually, prayer is one of the great struggles in life. And if you and I aren't spiritually focused... We're not going to engage in this battle. Like anything great, prayer is a really hard thing to do. It's a battle. It's a struggle. But one of the amazing residual benefits of prayer is that prayer makes it safe for God to give us the things we desire most. Oh God, my son has turned away. Oh, God, my mom, she's so sick. Or, God, these people need Jesus Christ. Or, God, I need wisdom in the office. 
at work. We know that Jesus is coming back. So prayer isn't that all you do is prayer, pray. Prayer here isn't that all you do is pray, but, but rather in all you do, you pray. In all you do. So personally, what this means for me is I set aside time almost every day to pray. It's usually in the morning. And then I pray as I go. I pray about different things as they come up during the day. I pray in the car. I pray before a meeting. You know, different things like that. I've got a long way to go in this area, but I'm committed to being a man of prayer. Jesus can return at any time. The end of all things is near. And so we pray. We pray because of the great needs in our lives, because of the needs in the lives of others we care about around us, because of the needs of the world. How are you doing? How is your prayer? And fourth and finally, and this is verses 10 and 11, we use our gifts to serve. The knowledge that Jesus could return at any moment that we are so incredibly loved propels us outside of ourselves to give ourselves to others. So what is verse 10? Verse 10 is just beautiful. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in your life. And it will look very different for each and every one of us because it occurs in various forms. So if you speak, do so as the one who speaks the very words of God. If you serve, you should do so in the strength God provides, the strength of the Holy Spirit. You can't do it on your own. Now, if you are here today and you're not a believer, I want you to know one of the amazing things Christianity teaches about what happens to the Christian the moment we believe in Christ is that he or she is immediately um, indwelt by the Holy Spirit. That means the Holy Spirit takes up residence, a permanent residence in the life of the believer. Why? Because the Holy Spirit knows we're inept. And one of the residual consequences of the life of the Holy Spirit in our lives is the New Testament teaches the Holy Spirit gives us what's called or what, what's called spiritual gifts. What is a spiritual gift? Well, a spiritual gift is an intensification of an ability, a passion, a, a talent, uh, in order to produce fruit for the kingdom of God. To produce fruit for the kingdom of God. And, and so Peter here describes two main categories. He describes speaking gifts and, and serving gifts. Now I want you to look at these three circles. Last Wednesday night at our leadership development, our faith and work intensive we call Gotham, I stole these from Pastor Mark. Completely stole these. Now, I've tweaked them a little, but I want you to see the three circles. Bottom left, my passions and gifts. Top, God's priorities. Third, the world's needs. Now, let's go on to the second slide. This is verse 10. Peter is saying God has given you passions and gifts, spiritual gifts. 
align those with God's priorities and use them to meet the world's needs. And when you do, and when these circles overlap at the intersection, you will find your sweet spot. And that's part of what Peter is getting at here. Uh, Billy Graham found a sweet spot. As Rhonda and I look at our adult kids in their late tw- or their 20s and their early 30s, we see how this is beginning to emerge in their lives. So uh, uh, one of our adult kids ha- has a gift of mercy and a gift of compassion. And so what does she do, man? She takes in foster kids. Another uh, one of our adult kids, one of our son-in-laws, has a a real desire to help, to serve troubled teenagers. So he works in an alternative high school full-time to minister to those kids. Doesn't hardly get paid anything. Some of our kids serve in the children's ministry in their churches. Uh, uh, Others are trying to interface with immigrants, with refugees. Peter says to know Jesus Christ means you have been given gifts, a gift or gifts. You have abilities, you have passions. Have you found your sweet spot? Are you using your gifts wherever you are, whatever you're doing? To honor and glorify God. The end, is of, the end of all things is at hand, Peter says. And how does he conclude? He says, be a faithful steward of God's grace. That's life in the sweet spot. Let's pray. Father, I want to pray for my brothers and sisters that you would bless them that you would work in our lives, that we so see Jesus, we're so overwhelmed with Jesus, so convicted by truth, by ultimate reality, that we are willing to live differently. In Jesus' name, amen.